Well, this morning, we have the joy and the privilege of opening up once again our Bibles together to the book of Mark as we continue our series in the gospel according to Mark. And this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 4, versículos 35 a 41. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time in Mark, or the first time in a while, we're several weeks now, actually a couple months into the book of Mark. And this series, and the book of Mark on the whole, it's about answering one question. One question, who is Jesus? And this morning, this morning we're on holy ground. For Mark, the master storyteller, this passage is one of the pinnacle moments in his recounting of the story of Jesus. A moment where who is Jesus is quite literally and dramatically asked and then powerfully and demonstratively answered. So, with that, listen closely. Here we go. With your eyes on Mark chapter 4, verse 35, let's read this account together. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's holy word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, cause us to see this morning what you would have us to see. 
with the eyes that you place within our skulls and the hearts with which in you've placed, placed within our souls, comprehend who then this is. Would we be filled with faith by your Spirit? Would our fear be calmed? Would you meet us mercifully and graciously? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On December 24th, 1968, I don't personally remember it, but the three astronauts of the Apollo 8 mission looked outside the window of their capsule as they came around the moon and they headed back toward Earth. And what they saw in that small circular window was something that no human being in history had ever seen. They saw the earth rising over the horizon of the moon. And with the 8mm camera that they had on board, they took a photo, which has since come to be known as Earthrise. A photo that nature photographer Galen Rowell considers to be the single most influential environmental photograph ever taken. And after returning to Earth, Apollo 8 astronaut James Lovell said, listen to this, he said, when we went into orbit, there was absolutely no prior thinking of what the Earth would look like, zero. He said, we, we didn't even think about what that might look, look like. But after having seen it, he said, and listen to this, he said, what NASA should have sent was poets. Because I don't think we captured in its entirety the grandeur of what we had seen. I don't think we have captured in its entirety the grandeur of what we had seen. Friends, the best poets in humanity could not capture the entirety of the grandeur of what we just read in this passage. But Mark does his very best. And we're going to do our best this morning to capture a glimpse, just, just a glimpse of it this morning. What, what we have before us is the first of four stunning miracles performed by Jesus. At the end here of chapter 4 and the rest of chapter 5. This follows on the heels of several different conflict scenes that Jesus had with the religious elite in chapters 2 and 3. And then in chapter 4... Jesus told several parables. So we have conflicts, then parables, and then now for miracles. And while the miracles of Jesus express grandeur beyond words, they also present us with a problem of application. Because, as author David Shaw says, he says, if we can't look at this miracle and say, go and do likewise... Or Jesus calms the storms in your life, where does that leave us? What do we do with these miracles? And, and what he's getting at here is that we can't look at this miracle and say, so, so now, get up and leave the church and go to the Pacific Ocean, get on a boat and, and tell the wind to cease. Obviously not the application. But the application also isn't to, to say, if you trust him, Jesus will calm the storms of your life. 
Not true, because look down at verse 35. (laughs) On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. On that day, and oh, what a day it had been. They, Jesus had, had just revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of God to them. But then, as that day nears an end and evening comes, he says, let us go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, Jesus led his disciples into the storm. It was his idea. It was his initiative. And we'll see, he didn't calm it because they asked him to. He calmed it despite their lack of faith. So the application here can't be, Jesus will calm the storms of your life if you ask him to. No, no, no. There must be some other reason that Mark included this miracle for us to read here. I believe that Mark included this miracle for us to read because we are amazed and fearful at all the wrong things. Let me repeat that. You and I have a tendency to be amazed and fearful at all the wrong things. Because there is a greater grandeur that we have the the woeful tendency to completely miss. We, We need that grandeur revealed to us, perhaps by a miracle such as this. Like the Apollo 8 astronauts, the disciples found themselves awed and and even even terrified at the power of nature. But suddenly, they found themselves in the presence of the Lord over nature. Think of what inspires awe in you. What makes you feel small and vulnerable? What, what, What makes you tremble? both in general, but also right now at this moment in your life. What inspires fear, trembling, awe, amazement, even even dreadful amazement? Perhaps it's something like like the vastness of space or something else in the natural world, but more likely, it's, it's the power of the natural world to exert itself over your life through circumstances, right? For instance, Maybe you stand in fearful awe, dreadful awe at the possibility that something so small as a few cancer cells or a microscopic virus could change your life in a matter of days and even be the end of it. Or maybe you're awed and feel helpless at the power of your brain to affect your mood. We, we tend to, especially in this modern age, we tend to stand helpless before the power of our own brains and emotions and feel like, like the natural me is what controls how I act and how I feel and how my life is going to go. Perhaps we tremble and stand in awe at the incessant march of time as our bodies age 
as we, as we try to, to maintain our grip on the best moments of life and the memories that we hold dear, but time marches on like a freight train. Stand in awe. You tremble at your fears, your doubts. But all these things are the wrong things to be fearfully amazed by. What you need is to encounter a grandeur greater than all of that. And we do here in Mark 4. We really, really do. So if, if you're taking notes this morning, there is no outline. We have one purpose. To, to capture that grandeur that the disciples saw. The, the, the grandeur that they saw and then responded to with a question that they asked in verse 41. And, and that question, goodness gracious, that question really is, that, that's the heart of this story. In fact, you could argue this question in verse 41, this is the heart of the Gospel of Mark. That question is where we're going. This morning. So, the story begins on that day, verse 35. Again, it's Jesus' idea to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and as soon as, as he's done teaching, just as he was, look at verse 35, or verse 36. As soon as he's done teaching, as he was, they take him from his boat, his floating pulpit that he's been teaching from on the sea to the crowds up on the hillside, they take him from his boat into their boat. And their boat is more than likely a 26-ish foot boat that's, that's seven feet wide. So 26 feet long, seven feet wide. It's not a tiny little skiff, but, but it's also not huge. Four oars on this boat, two on each side. They take him into their boat, and they get underway, about an 11-mile journey. They begin in the evening, so they're rowing through the night, 11 miles from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side, from Capernaum to the Gerasenes. And they get underway. And other boats were with them, it says, but that's the last we hear of those boats. We don't know what happens to those boats. Mark just includes that for some reason that he doesn't disclose to us. And on their way, verse 37, look down at the text, a great, pay attention to that word. It appears three times. Mark is very purposeful with how he uses that word. In the Greek, megas, a great windstorm arose. Now, Lest you think that this is just a, a slight breeze that Mark is, is exaggerating, know that the Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level with 3,000-foot cliffs rising all around it. So it's at the bottom of this basin. But 30 miles to the north, northeast is Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon rises 10,000 feet above sea level. And so when, when the cold air descends from the mountain and meets with the warm air coming up from the basin of the Sea of Galilee, massive storms arise. And with the Sea of Galilee, Galilee kind of being in this, this basin or, or even valley, it acts like a funnel. And winds just careen through there. And even modern mariners are hesitant to go out onto the Sea of Galilee in its worst storms. This was a serious windstorm. 
nature exerting its awesome power. Waves are breaking into the boat. Just picture the scene. Huge waves. This, this little 26-foot boat trying to weather these, these waves and this wind, but they can't because the waves are breaking into the boat, and slowly the water level in the boat is increasing, and the boat is lowering further and further and further into the water. They're probably still miles from shore. The next wave could send them to a watery grave. This is the scene. And Jesus, look at verse 38, is sleeping. <laughs> He's sleeping in the stern on a cushion, which is probably a, a leather-covered cushion that the, the helmsman sat on, but he's sleeping. And commentator R.T. France says that Jesus' sleep was the untroubled serenity of di divine omnipotence. Psalm chapter 4, verse 8 says that, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Jesus knew this. As he, per as he had perfect communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he was in perfect peace. This was the untroubled serenity of divine omnipotence. But the disciples aren't seeing it that way. <laughs> no, no. They're, they're shaking Jesus and with panic pleading, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Pastor C.J. Mahaney says that the question the disciples ask is the cruelest question. It is the cruelest question. And do you know why? Do you know why that is the cruelest question? It's because the very reason that Jesus is in the boat with them, in fact, the very reason that he is in the world with them, is because he cares for them more deeply than they ever could have imagined. He cares for them so much, and yet their eyes are so blinded that they ask, teacher, do you not even care that we're perishing? It's a rebuke. It's an accusation of Jesus that if Jesus really cared, he would save them. He wouldn't be sleeping. But again, what they didn't realize is that Jesus' entire purpose for taking on human flesh was to save them. He's on a mission to save them from the moment that he was born from Mary's womb until the moment that he breathed his last on the cross. Let me ask you, whatever you're standing in fear of, do your prayers, and be honest here, do your prayers ever seem like you're just shaking God by the shoulders and saying, do you even care? Do you even care what I'm going through? If you did, wouldn't you answer me? If so, and hear this with gentleness and compassion, if so, you're still amazed and fearful at the wrong thing. James Edwards, commentator, he says, Jesus, at this point, is still a stranger to his own followers, for they are better able to handle the possibility of their own death 
than the possibility of the presence of God among them. So awed and fearful are they at the power of nature that the most natural place that they're able to go to is the conclusion that death is on its way. It was easier for them to come to terms with that than to accept the possibility that God is with them in the boat and that he cares for them. He was still a stranger to them. And for us, sometimes he becomes a stranger to us again. So let me ask, is destruction and disaster of whatever you're fearful of, is, is, is your imagining that this will end in destruction or disaster for you easier for you to accept than it is for you to expect that God is with you and that he cares for you? Is it easier for you to expect or to accept your own impending disaster than it is for you to expect that God is with you and that he cares for you? If so, then the question that Jesus asks in verse 40 is the question he also asks of you and of me. But before he asks a question in response to their accusation, he stands. So they wake him up. He stands. And, and I mean, these guys are accusing him. Do you not care? And I can only imagine. He, he looks them gently, lovingly in the eye, and then he turns his gaze away from them over to the horizon. And I can only imagine that he calmly and gently says, Peace. Be still. Two words in Greek. Two words spoken in verse 39. And the wind ceased. And the waves flattened out. And the sea became like glass. And in contrast to the great windstorm, look at verse 39, there is an instantaneous great calm. Like giving a command to a well-trained dog, peace, be still. The forces of nature itself bow to the words of its master, to its Lord, and the Lord over creation, the Lord over nature, turns to his disciples and says in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's a good thing I wasn't there, because I, I would no doubt, I read these stories and I think, I, I would rival Peter in his denials. I would, I would rival Thomas in his doubting of Jesus. I, I would hear that question and in my arrogance and frustration say, what are you so afraid of? We almost died. We, Jesus, we were, we were looking at the shadow of death. All four miracles in this series of miracles, and pay attention to this, remember this as we go in the next three weeks, 
all four miracles involve people staring down the shadow of death. Here in 4, 35 to 41, the disciples encounter the shadow of death in a lethal storm, right? But in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, a man who is possessed by a demon is driven out among the tombs, preferring to dwell with the dead than the living, preferring to, to, to sort of move toward death in his very patterns of life by the influence of the demon. In chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, we first meet a woman who, whose body was, was draining blood and had been for years, her lifeblood constantly emptying from her, threatening death any day. And then at the end of chapter 5, with Jairus' sweet little girl, who had herself actually encountered death. And in each of these occasions, Jesus addresses people who are staring down the shadow of death. And he effectively says in each occasion, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Even the shadow of death is no reason to inspire fear in your heart. Have you, have you no faith? And the disciples, they didn't arrogantly, like I would have, ask how, how, how I would have. Instead, verse 41, they looked at one another and they asked the question. They look at what Jesus had just done. They listened to what he just said. And they say, who then is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this? Feel the drama in this question. Feel what is behind this question. They had just realized something. Only God commands the wind and the waves. Psalm 107 verse 29 says, the Lord makes the storm be still and hushes the waves of the sea. Only God rebukes the waters and the waves obey. Psalm 89.9 says, you, O Lord, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. It was God who hovered over the chaos of the waters in Genesis 1-2 that he had just created and stilled them. They had just seen Jesus do something that as far as they knew and read and heard, only God could do. Who then is this? Mark chapter 1 verse 1 answers that for us, doesn't it? Go, go back in, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who then is this? This is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord over all creation, 
the one who brought creation into being and the one whose power exceeds even the power of nature itself. Who then is this? This is is a question that this whole sermon series is asking. But, But the question, when it's posed this way, this question is posed this way by one who has beheld a glimpse of Jesus' true identity. That's why you keep hearing us say, who is Jesus is the most important question. And that who is Jesus is the the first question you should be asking in every scenario. Because when you glimpse his grandeur for what it is, everything else pales. And we say, who then is this? It's it's no mere inquiry, as if we're just saying, like, who is Jesus? I need to gain this information. It's no no mere curious question to, 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 to satisfy our curiosity. It's no question where Jesus needs to prove himself by our judgment so that he can then be held rightly in our eyes. No. It's who. If Jesus has done this, who is he? And and who then is he in this situation? Because certainly, certainly, he is over and greater and informs this situation. James Lovell, astronaut of Apollo 8, listen to what he said. This This is a great, great perspective on this. He said, when I saw the earth, I suddenly realized that everything in life is relative. When you're in a room, your world revolves around those walls. When you're outside, your world revolves around what your eye can see. Isn't that true? When you're looking at the earth, everything that your world used to revolve around disappears. When you're looking at Jesus, in the fullness of his glory and power, the threat and power of everything else disappears. That's why your first question is, who is Jesus? Mark proves this to us. He proves this to us. Look at, look at the beginning of verse 41. Verse 41, and they were filled with great Fear. Literally, in the original language, they were terrified with great terror. So they were already afraid in the storm, right? Now they're terrified. They went from petrified to terrified. The the, the fear they were already experiencing is now heightened to the nth degree. But here's the point. Everything suddenly became relative to Jesus. Even even a life-threatening storm, storm became relative to Jesus. No longer was that storm fearful because they'd just seen who Jesus is. Everything else disappeared. They suddenly realized that the literal center of the universe was standing with them in the boat. One commentator says that Fear as a response to physical danger is natural. It's natural. 
But fear in Jesus' presence is unnecessary. Oh, I read that this week, and that was such a comforting, warm salve to my soul because I suddenly, as I read it, in light of, of this miracle, thought to myself, yes, that is absolutely true. Fear is unnecessary. We are not slaves to fear. We who have beheld Christ in his true identity do not have to fear any physical, temporal danger. You don't have to fear what you're most tempted to fear, no matter what it is. So let me ask it again. What are you trembling before in fear this morning? Or to, to ask it another way, what's the storm that you're afraid of? What, what, is, what is the storm? What is the storm that you're afraid is going to sink you? That prompts you to say, God, don't you care? Remember, the point of this miracle isn't that Jesus will calm your storm. Okay, It's very important to remember that. He led the disciples into the storm, and he had a purpose in mind for their experience of the storm. And he has sovereignly led you into the storm that you're currently weathering, or the one that you will soon weather. No, no, no. It's, it's not even that we should marvel that Jesus can calm the storm ultimately. We should, but that's not the point of this. The, the point of Jesus' miracles weren't to show off his abilities. And while while that might be hard to understand, let me, let me to illustrate what I mean. There's a, there's a short film called Uncle Drew. Any of you ever seen Uncle Drew? If you haven't, I would actually highly recommend it to you. It's about 10 minutes long and it's fantastic. NBA All-Star Kyrie Irving gets dressed up very convincingly as an old man in his mid-80s or so. And Kyrie Irving at the time is like 22 years old, one of the best, best basketball players in the world. And he goes over to Harlem, finds a, a street court where about 40 or 50 guys are, are, are playing. And these guys are good. This, this, is, this is Harlem. And he gets out on the court, and he just runs all over those guys. This 85-year-old man just runs all over those guys. Now, the point isn't that there, that there is an old guy in Harlem that can ball it up better than anyone around. The point is that these, is that these guys were in the presence of an NBA all-star. That, that's what's so, so gripping about this, this video. You can't stop thinking about that, that, that these guys are impressed with these skills, but ultimately Kyrie Irving is among them and they don't even realize it. Under the makeup, Kyrie Irving was with them. Under the weakness of human flesh, the God of the universe was with the disciples. The point isn't that Jesus will calm your storms or even that he can calm your storms. It's that he, the Lord over nature, is with you in the storm. And he cares. That's the point. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. 
the one who has the ability to calm the storm. Again, that's not, that's not what we should be amazed at. We should be amazed at Him and that He would love us enough to be with us and care for us in and through the storm. Friends, you can know for certain that He is with us in any of life's storms and that He cares for you because He entered the greatest storm. And that's where Mark is going. That's what, that's what this miracle is ultimately foreshadowing. When Jesus entered the storm of God's wrath for sin on the cross, and this storm, He entered for us, not with us, but in our place, for us. And in that storm, He went toe-to-toe with sin and death themselves. And friends, there is nothing else in the whole realm of nature and creation that is more terrifying, more truly, actually terrifying than death, because it is what is coming for every single one of us, and sin, because sin invites the wrath of God. There is nothing more terrifying than either of those. Yet Jesus confronted them both on his cross and through his death. Sin and death cowered like a well-trained dog. And he defeated them. And he entered into that storm for you so that you won't have to enter into the storm of God's wrath. And because he entered into the greatest storm, you can be sure that he's with you in every other storm and that he cares for you. Listen, you and I, we tend to stand amazed. We tend to tremble at all the wrong things. You may be in the storm right now, and if you are, pray that the Lord would send His Spirit to comfort you and to bring you into an awareness of the grandeur of Jesus Christ. But the storm may be yet to come. And it probably is. And it probably is. But even if it is, it is Jesus who is leading you into this into the storm and who will be with you in this storm and care for you. Whether, whether it's the storm of your brain and its emotions, the storm of the relentlessness of time, the storm of sickness and the possibility of death and doom and destruction, don't tremble at the storm. Don't stand in fear of it. Tremble, yet tremble, yet tremble with confident peace before the Lord of nature who cares for you and is with you in the storm and who entered the greatest storm of all to ensure you that he's with you. Who then is this? It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, in your word, we, we have beheld only a glimpse of the grandeur of your Son. 
Lord, I pray that you would that you would dissuade us from believing, from believing that, that anything else is more grand or awesome or fearful or dreadful than the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we, we rightfully fear you. But because of the cross, we fear you out of reverence and awesome wonder at the grace that you've extended to us through your son's cross. We stand in, in fearful trembling because we know we don't deserve what you've given us by your mercy. Oh Lord, would we, would we be, behold more and more day by day the grandeur of the reality of Jesus Christ the Son of God. It's in His name we pray. Amen.